So at 10, we don't have an espresso machine. That was the conception behind that was, could we open up an espresso bar and not have an espresso machine? And I love espresso. This is a, a prerequisite to this. However, as any cafe operator or folks in the restaurant industry or people at home who make espresso understand it's a beautiful product, but there's a lot of waste, a lot of inconsistency. It's extremely difficult to train for and maintain that training, especially in cafe and restaurant environments. So I had a weird idea to pair with a dish that we were working on. It was a continental breakfast and so a version of one. So I needed to figure out a coffee component to pair with that and tried something a little weird and off the wall and not thinking about replacing traditional espresso, just a fun idea. And it, people loved it. We just started, I started thinking more and more about, well, could I explore that further? Could that actually be something that tastes more authentically like espresso and could work in that way? So that's when we started thinking about it in batch form and that's and that's how we run the coffee bar there and i don't think most people know who are coming to the place that we don't have an espresso machine they're just getting beautiful espresso drinks behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft welcome to flavors unknown a behind the scenes look at new flavors and the chefs pastry chefs and bartenders who create them with your host emmanuel Coffee sits in the background of some of the most important moments in our lives. And if I came to appreciate coffee late in my life, probably around the time when I had my first job, today, coffee is the way how I discover a city. Mapping online the best roasteries a city has to offer and wandering the streets, a cup of Cortado in hand. And when it comes to Los Angeles, Bar 9 and now 10 Cafe are must coffee stops. Today, my guest is Zaid Nakwib, owner of Bar 9 and 10 Cafe in Los Angeles. Welcome to episode 76 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been working in the food and the beverage industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I share inspirational stories of US-renowned culinary leaders. You can find all the information about the show and all previous episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com and listen to the episodes where you listen to your podcast. Just search for Flavors Unknown. Don't forget to follow us if you don't want to miss any upcoming episodes. Zayn Nakwib talks about his passion for coffee, the impact of coffee variety more than coffee origin on the final taste of coffee in the cup. His batch espresso nectar which allows him to serve a full espresso menu without an espresso machine at 10 Cafe, and the biggest challenges people face starting a coffee business. Hi, Zaid. Welcome to uh, Flavors Unknown. I'm really uh, glad that I was able to uh, put you in uh, my schedule in LA. Thank you, Emmanuel. I am so happy to be speaking with you today. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I remember we are in this uh, interesting space, you know, Bar 9 in Los Angeles, and uh, I had the chance to, you know, to taste your uh, coffee and food at your new location two days ago at uh, 10 Cafe, which uh, was, was wonderful. And I'm, I'm glad that we are able to have that conversation today. I'm curious, so how did you get into, uh, into coffee? 
I got into coffee, like a lot of people, uh, a little bit by accident. I was working, like a lot of people here in Los Angeles, in the film and video world, and I was doing freelance work. And then I wanted to find a part-time job that I thought could be fun between gigs. I was working a lot of freelance gigs at the time where I'd be working for two or three months straight for crazy hours, then have a big gap and wanted something a little bit more regular. And I have always loved coffee. And I walked to a cafe near my house and asked if they were hiring. And within a year of doing that part-time, I just completely fell in love with the industry, the process, and with hospitality. So I'm, I'm guessing at that time when you started working there, you were kind of like, called it like a barista probably? Like, <laughs> yes, correct. absolutely. So yeah. learning that aspect first. And, but when did you start getting into almost like behind the scene and then started to get interested into the, the roasting aspect? Fairly quickly, the way I like to get into anything, I can get a little obsessive and go for it in pretty intense ways. So I had bought an espresso machine pretty quickly after we started to work as a barista for home and every brewing method I could think of under the sun or that I could afford to buy. So that's where it started, just really getting into the process. And I'm a very process-oriented person. I think within two or three years is when I started getting a lot more interested in roasting. I had been working with some really great roasters at the cafe that I was at, and I started to really key in on, you know, of course, how the coffee is roasted. It has an incredible impact on the service of it and how guests receive it. And then I, you know, like anything else, I just, I wanted to explore every aspect of it I could. So roasting was a natural progression from working behind the bar. You mentioned that you started first at home to test like different methods, you know, from like espresso pour overs and, you know, I'm sure. Do you have like any advice for like coffee lovers that I am, but I'm not into roasting yeah. <laughs> coffee, how to, um, what to consider to make a great cup of uh, coffee at home? That's a good question. I think understanding what your constants and variables are and trying to keep as many things constant as possible. That way, whenever you are making any change, you understand what that change is doing, where the grind of the coffee might be more of a macro change, whereas the temperature might be a micro change, not that it can't be a big change in and of itself. So I would just focus on keeping things as consistent as possible. If you have a roaster that you love, focus on their coffees for a little bit until you feel really comfortable with making a pour over whatever you're doing in a home environment. From there, exploration is a beautiful thing. And I would try different things, but take a note of what you're tasting throughout. Because even when you do something that's less desirable, it can still, you can still learn something from it. And that's usually where I've learned most of, most of my things, which has been for making a lot of big mistakes. How far can you explore, especially when it comes to espresso? Because I'm, I'm sure it's really, when you're at home, I mean, because I'm, I'm guessing it's really much like connected to the equipment that you have, correct? The brand, like the level of the espresso machine, because, you know, you can get from very cheap to like very, very expensive ones. Yes. It's much more difficult, I think, to make great espresso at home than it is in a cafe. And that's even for trained baristas. Commercial equipment is designed to be really consistent and it's really easy to work with. There are still a lot of small details in espresso preparation, home or cafe that you'd have to understand, tamping evenly, things like that. But I think if you can figure out how to get good with whatever you have, I think that's usually the starting point because you can get a great extraction with any brew method. And once you start understanding the basics of extraction, 
and then you can apply that to espresso, that really works. And so for me, one of the things that I look for is in any brew method really is how coffee finishes. Is it juicy on the finish? Is it dry and astringent or is it flat or sour? And I tend to go for coffees that are juicier on the finish. And that's going to be probably a really nice extraction no matter how you're brewing it. If it gets really bitter and dry, maybe a little less, maybe a coarser grind or a faster extraction. If it's something where it tastes flat or sour, maybe go with a finer grind and just start there. But that will be true no matter how you brew it. And that took me a while to realize. I, I looked at whether it was siphon or pour over or espresso. I When I started, I thought these were all very different worlds unto themselves and you realize it's not. It's, it's the same thing. There's just different variables for each one. Okay. You know, the, the different profile that you described, you didn't mention acidity. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, sourness, but like for me, for instance, personally, I, I have a difficulty like to really appreciate like a, a coffee being, you know, too, too acidic. So what is like the, the element to act on, you know, when you want to re reduce, you know, uh, like the level of acidity? So there's something that's inherent to the bean itself. So some things will be And then there's a difference between, difference between acidity and whether something is acidic, right? So a coffee can have a really defined and beautiful acidity, but not be very acidic, right? So that's something that I look for in sourcing coffees. I want coffees that are balanced between acidity, body, and sweetness, because acidity is important as it is in cooking or anything else, right? But not if it's not in balance. And I tend to agree with you. I think if a coffee is just all about its acidity or presents as very acidic, that's If it presents as very acidic, that might be an extraction issue. Or if it's a if it's a green coffee that we've sourced that's very high in acidity but doesn't have a nice body, it doesn't have nice sweetness, it's not going to be palatable for a ton of people. It's going to be more of an, a niche thing. Not that that's not valuable, but it's less interesting. So I would look for two things. I would look for coffees that are balanced. And the best way to taste any coffee If you have a pour over, that's great or anything like that works. But if you learn how to cup coffee, which is how we taste it in the industry, that's going to be the best way to evaluate a coffee just overall. And then if you're getting a more acidic extraction, then it's probably under extracted and you need to adjust how you're brewing it to okay. reduce that. Yes, yeah, okay. so more extraction in that case. So you're talking about selection. So how do you go about, what's your process when it comes to selecting, I, I'm guessing, green coffee? Yeah. Beans. It's changed dramatically over the years. When we started, we were tasting about 500 coffees or so a year to select about 18 to 20 on the menu um, for the whole. But through that process, we've had a lot of really wonderful relationships that have developed over the years. We do a lot more direct work than we did before. So we have, in particular, some wonderful people that we work with in Ethiopia, run by this wonderful gentleman, Ashnafi Arga, and Steve Holtz is his name here in the United States. And they used to work with 90 Plus Coffee, a really wonderful producer that had work in Ethiopia and Panama. They're focused more on Panama now, so the old Ethiopia team for them, we're still working with a lot. So... We love coffees from Ethiopia in general because it's the birthplace of coffee. It's where it's going to be the widest variety of palate experiences that can be presented. Uh, so some of it will be direct and then some of it will be spot purchases, coffees that are already coming into the country. In general, we look for balance. We, we want, we like fruit, but uh, we like sweetness as well. And I would define that for anybody that 
loves wine as well. We define sweetness in coffee a little bit differently. Uh, so it's not what you think of when you think of sweet in wine, but it's a very wonderful quality that we that we tend to look for. And if it has both of those things, then it usually works out pretty well. But most of the time, we're looking at a pre-ship sample. So, you know, when a coffee is being harvested, but not all the way finished with production, producer will send out samples at that point. So we'll taste and evaluate pretty early on in the process. And we will or we won't make contracts based on how those taste. And then and then you evaluate them when they get into the country. They may fall off a little bit. They might blossom. They might be consistent with what you tasted because you're really only getting a window into what that coffee will be until you taste it once it's okay. landed. So we, with all the parameters that you described before that are influencing and impacting the end results, you know, in the cup of coffee, how do you go about, and it's very naive question for someone who is not in the business at all, but I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about it. How do you go about evaluating different sources of coffee with different origins, uh, different production methods, knowing that all the different parameters that you described before in the roasting you know, process is going to impact. So there's so many parameters that you can apply to each of those individual you know, green beans. I'm curious to say that how can you go in and say, oh, that's, that's the one I want. Because maybe if you have like different parameters, maybe it's going to do something. Maybe someone can miss maybe a great, yeah. a great product. It's not easy. Making a decision is probably the hardest thing because there's so many beautiful coffees that are produced every year. And then there's going to be changes year to year based on, you know, the rainfall was sure. consistent. or natural so, you product. Know, yeah. Exactly, right? So there are endless possibilities, which is part of the fun, but part of the challenge. So I can get lost in the possibilities at times. So in some ways, like when we're tasting a lot of new coffees, uh, a lot of pre-shipped coffees, we're making a lot of quick decisions that are on the no side. That not, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And then when we have a group of coffees that all look really wonderful, then we, we still try to taste everything as blind as possible because preconceived notions and, and biases will play into it with anything we taste. Uh, so we try to be as objective as we can in evaluating the quality of the coffee. But then we, you know, at the same time, there's also an emotional impact of tasting anything. So we want to be able to deliver that as well. And while we can be very analytical, our final cupping form, which is one that we have come up with, it's a little bit different than the the industry standard. It measures more how we feel about each of the coffees. Once we've gotten to a place where we like these, you know, 10 or 12 coffees, and we've got to select two or three for the menu, we try to make a decision at the end about what we, what gets us most excited. And that's harder to find. But the kind of intangible, intuitive selecting at the end is part of it. And then Honestly, there are pragmatic choices to make as well. Like, where is that coffee being warehoused? If it's being warehoused in a continental in New Jersey versus a coffee that might be warehoused at the Annex in Oakland, we're going to consider that because if there are two coffees that are going to be performing similarly that we both love, we're going to try to get one that's going to be stored closer for a myriad of reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. So you were talking about Ethiopia, you know, as a source, there's other, you know, origin that you, that you guys like? Absolutely. Well, and the, where the coffee is produced is only so much of it, right? The variety of the coffee plays 
a bigger role, I would argue. Okay. That's not, not everybody in the industry feels that way. Some people feel it's about the origin. Some people feel it's more about the fermentation or how the coffee was processed. I think it's all true. But if, with, for instance, with a Bourbon variety, which is spelled bourbon, but mm-hmm. pronounced Bourbon. Yeah. Bourbon tastes like Bourbon no matter where it's grown. And so that's where there are connections with the wine world and things like that. Because coffee variety tastes like what it is. Or if there's a Gesha variety, that's something that has become more. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Panama is known for Gesha, yeah. but it can grow yeah. anywhere. Anywhere, correct. And, and like any other coffee, it's from Ethiopia originally. And Gesha will taste like Gesha no matter where it's grown. So we're pretty open-minded and sometimes things will surprise us. We have a really beautiful coffee from Chiapas right now that has some fantastic acidity, very strawberry forward, more on the tartaric side. It has this really beautiful spiced kind of pink peppercorn note on the finish and it knocked our socks off. And not that we don't love coffees from Mexico, we do, but this one performed differently than we expected. So whenever that happens, we're super stoked. And one of the varieties there is Mundo Novo, which is normally found in Brazil or grown in Brazil, rather. It's not very revered as as a cultivar in coffee. It's usually a lot of high volume coffees, but for whatever reason, in this environment with those conditions, it just worked beautifully. So we try to stay open-minded and not let some of those biases impact our final decision. What do you think about uh, this um, excitement around like uh, Geisha coffee? You know, and because I, I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's very expensive. It's very expensive, right? And there are varieties of coffee that you know maybe the general public haven't tasted yet that are more expensive than Geisha. Woosh Woosh is one that is pretty exceptional. So, but at the same time, you know. It's like anything else. When you have an opportunity to taste something that's really refined and beautiful, if you have a good palate, if you like tasting new things, it's great. I think it's like anything else, though. I mean, when you and I first met about four years ago, we were serving a ton of Gesha variety coffees. And we were working with 90 plus Gesha estates in Panama. And we built a blend around a naturally fermented processed Gesha called Baru. And that was a really fun experience. And it was a way for us to incorporate it in a blend and kind of bring it to the masses a little bit more. But it's right now, I would say it's it's justifiably loved. And I love the variety, but it's not the end all be all. There's so many other beautiful varieties too. And beyond that too, there are so many that we haven't tasted that haven't been isolated that are just growing wild in Ethiopia right now. That The scope of that is much, much larger than the varieties we have access to. So that's where I'm mo- more curious is okay. what haven't we tasted. And uh, do you find in, in coffee, you know, coffee roasting, like that there's trends, you know, like uh, there's like interest in like, like the Keisha, you know, like variety, for instance, and then it's becoming very popular and so on. But as you said, there's maybe like another one. So are you looking at exploring, I would say, more confidential or not as known you know, variety because it's a potential, you know, commercial aspect that's something new on the menu, for instance, and intriguing for the consumers? Yeah, I think anytime we have an opportunity to present something that's unique or exciting, I'm always game to try. I mean, within reason, if it's, if it's new and exciting and doesn't taste good, less interesting. But yeah, coffee is, the coffee industry is very 
has been or can be very trend heavy. And that might even just be to in roast degree and the way co- coffee is developed that things will come in and out of favor, which is why I tend not to try to worry too much about what those trends are, because at the end of the day, we know what we like, and that works well for our guests and the people that are serving our coffee. So we try to stay focused in on whatever that is. Okay. So you're the owner of uh, Bar 9 and uh, 10 Cafe in, in LA. So let's let's talk a little bit about those, you know, places and what you are doing here, which makes you like really different from other uh, coffee roasters. So obviously there is like the traditional, you know, approach of uh, coffee roasting, but you have a, as well a unique product in your portfolio, which is your uh, batch espresso. So I'm guessing that, you know, you're going to talk to us about that. (laughs) Yeah, that would definitely be a big difference. Yeah. So at 10, we don't have an espresso machine. Uh, That was the conception behind that was, could we open up an espresso bar and not have an espresso machine? And I love espresso. This is a a prerequisite to this. However, as any cafe operator or folks in the restaurant industry or people at home who make espresso understand it's a beautiful product, but there's a lot of waste, a lot of inconsistency. It's extremely difficult to train for and maintain that training, and especially in cafe and restaurant environments. So I had an, a weird idea to pair with a dish that we were working on. It was a continental breakfast, and so a version of one. So I needed to figure out a coffee component to pair with that and tried something a little weird and off the wall and not thinking about replacing traditional espresso, just a fun idea. And it, people loved it. I, I served it at a tasting for 10 and it just went over really, really well. So we just started, I started thinking more and more about, well, could I explore that further? And could that actually be something that tastes more authentically like espresso and could work in that way? So then so when we started thinking about it in batch form and that's and that's how we run the coffee bar there. And people, I don't think most people know who are coming to the place that we don't have an espresso machine. They're just getting beautiful espresso drinks. And that's pretty exciting. So in terms of how we're different as a roaster, that, that's hard for me to say. Because like I said, I don't pay too much attention to what everybody else is doing. We try to stay introspective and focus on what we like to do. But we like to explore things. I think that is always been true for us as a company. And if there's some fun way to dive deeper into the world that we're in, we're going to try to dive deeper. And if it can turn into something that we can turn around and sell, that's fantastic. But we're going to still do the deep dive either way. But yeah, we're calling the batched espresso, espresso nectar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I had just like a cup of it that you uh, kindly prepared before we started the the interview and I, I really love and I, I just mentioned to you that what I find like really uh, interesting and uh, it's the the palatability like they has like a really great mouthfeel, you know, in, in, in the product. So I, I really like that. It has a fantastic, you know, espresso taste and profile as well. Thank you so much. We're very proud of it. Yeah, it's it's really good. So, you know, if there's anyone listening, uh, you know, from the LA area, please, you know, go to, you know, 10 Cafe. So how would you describe your roasting style? It's a very good question. It's a balance, I would say, between 
trying to stay honest with the ingredients that we have and showcase them in their best light. And at the same time, you know, we have an approach to development and the way we apply energy that is maybe a little bit more intense in, in the way the energy is applied to the coffee than others. You know, years ago, we, we changed the, the ma- max allowable temperature on our roaster to be able to charge with hotter and hotter temperatures. So I would say we f- focus on development at an earlier stage of the roast, perhaps, than other roasters. Because, I mean, every second the coffee is roasting, it is developing. But traditionally, a lot of people think of development as something that happens more towards the end of the roast. So it's a balance between showcasing the coffees to be as beautiful and honest as they can be, but at the same time, you know, not veering into just that Scandinavian light roast thing, which I love, but it's pretty hard to extract really well. So we try to get those same types of presentations where the roast is not the dominant taste, but that someone could brew it, you know, at pretty standard brew temperature. So another way that We've referred to that in the past. People have referred to that as an omni-roast style, where no matter how you're brewing it, it should taste good. We're not roasting for an extraction. We're roasting to present the coffees to be versatile and still be true to whatever they are. Okay. And true from the variety, I guess. Sure. Absolutely. Um, More from like the origin, as you explained before. What kind of roaster do you use? I mean, I can see it here. But. <laughs> yes, it's a beautiful Probat Probatone 12, uh-huh. uh, something that a roaster we had gotten new when we first started. So this was, uh, we got this in 2013. And Probat is a wonderful company and they, you know, they've been around for a very, very long time, since the 1800s, making coffee roasters. And this is a really wonderful design. A lot of roasters will roast on their L-series roaster, which is kind of the model before this one. And really the only principal difference is this one can roast and cool at the same time. But stainless steel trim, cast iron faceplate, and Probat just has a, a really wonderful way of kind of rounding out the flavors in the coffee in a, in a very specific way that Probat roasters do. But there's a lot of other, of course, wonderful roasters out there, but it just felt the most true to what we wanted to present okay so there's a lot of you know people that get into uh, coffee roasting you know that's uh, fell into like the passion for coffee and it's been like really bubbling throughout the country it's interesting you know in the past i would say 10 years so what uh, would be your top three advice i know if someone wants to open like you know a coffee shop and, and becoming like a coffee roaster wow top three i think the first thing that comes to mind is you should do some work in that industry and in, the, in this world before you consider opening something. I only say that because there's a lot of people that think it could be a lot of fun or it's an easy way to make money. And yes, business? yeah, okay. you absolutely okay. can. It's though it's, a, you know, unless you're getting, you know, an insane level of VC money to grow in a wild way or get bought by a big company, which happens a lot in our industry, you're probably not going to get crazy wealthy doing coffee. But it's true with anything else, like in the restaurant industry as well. It's it's similar types of margins that you're working with. So you have to, you do have to love it and have a desire to keep pushing forward. But so I would, yeah, the passion and the interest has to be there, but that will wane and subside and you'll have peaks and valleys. So you got to enjoy the consistency, the rituals of the day to day. 
it's a lot of doing the same thing over and over again, as in, you know, in many industries. So I would, you know, you have to have, be able to have some longevity too. It's, it's not something where you're probably going to invest, get something started in two years, sell it. And I mean, not that it's not impossible to do that, but it's probably less enjoyable to try for that. And you probably won't make as much money as you will if you mm -hmm. really enjoy the work. Okay. How much money do you need? you know, to start, you know, you know, some a business. Like well, it depends that. on, depends on the scope and the scale and how you want it to grow or don't want it to grow. There are a lot of really cool options now for cafes to not invest the types of investments that we made into the, into our roasting setup. Bellwether is a very cool company that's making ventless coffee roasters that can be put in cafes that are they're kind of the size of a double door fridge or maybe slightly smaller. Obviously, the batch size is going to be a lot smaller. They provide a lot of interesting things in automation. So you don't really know how you don't have to know how to roast to necessarily produce a, a nice cup of coffee or a nice, nice roast of coffee with it. So I think it just really depends. I think the traditional model of a big roaster, wholesaler type of thing, you know, to me, it has less viability if I was starting fresh than it does now because it's so easy to roast or to what a lot of people are doing is they're sending their coffee to a roaster like that, or they're sending green coffee to a roaster like that, or they're buying private label, but they'll pass it off as coffee that they're roasting. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, it's, it's, but it's a lot cheaper to do that. So if you want to do retail, you know, you really don't need to get into roasting. It's like, do you want to get into roasting or do you have something that you want to say? If it's just about freshness, probably not the biggest concern because coffee doesn't taste its best until it's had some rest anyway. So I think you should roast if you have a point of view that you want to get across. And for us, we wanted to be able to present a, an all the way through experience. And that was really important for us. And one thing that I never had the opportunity before bar nine, working with other roasters at cafes that I was at was what is that relationship between the roasting and the extraction and how does that work? And that was a question that I didn't really have as many answers to besides just trying a bunch of different roasters. So If you like getting into the weeds and the details, roasting is awesome. If you don't, maybe focus on retail and you're probably going to uh, have a lot less headaches and less back issues. There's another interesting, I would say, innovation that you have done, which is like the glass jars, yeah. you know, concept. So can you again talk to us about yeah. what it is With and pleasure. the fact that it seems that it's spreading around the country? Yes, this is a beautiful thing that I didn't think was going to happen. We, so we started doing glass from the beginning of our soft open. And when we opened in 2014, we had talked about internally, do we want to do a compostable cup as a standard and glass as an option? And we realized that if we were to really make it work and impact positive change around or away rather from single use cups that we just had to go for it all the way, which my accountant thought I was crazy. But <laughs> <laughs> so we started doing that and we experimented with like a $1 charge to get into the program and then realized then within a few weeks of doing it, that all the conversations with guests we were having were about the dollar and how that worked and you're kind of missing the point. So we decided, well, we're just going to give them out and just 
treat it like the honor system and ask if you can to bring it back. And that's how that started. So we have these 12 ounce Paragon jars with lug threads. You can get them from wholesale glass distributors all across the country. And we just ask people to bring them back. And that in of itself too, from a service perspective and hospitality perspective, I'm wired and our team is wired to give with no expectation of return. But every once in a while, asking something of a guest can be a pretty powerful thing. And then, you know, over the years, people would ask questions about it. Like, how are you doing it? How are you still in business? And I would just answer and field calls and questions from anybody who, had, who wanted to know. And I still do to this day. People will reach out on Instagram or email. And a lot of people were interested and excited about what we were doing around that. But it didn't seem like it would be something that other people would go for. I actually tried to get some other um, shops in LA to do it with us back in 2014 and 2015. And while people thought it was cool, they didn't, they felt it was too risky. And I get that. But in 2017, we started also offering, in addition to when someone would bring in a dozen at a time, we would treat them to a drink. We started offering 25 cents off every drink for every jar that was brought back. And our returns increased about 10 to 20% at that point. And I can't take credit for that idea. It was our comptroller, Sean, at the time who had that idea. And at that point, our cost of goods sold actually flipped to where we were actually saving money because of the amount of returns that we were getting instead of spending you know, quite a bit more because they cost about twice that of a, a branded paper cup. So once I started telling people that we're actually saving money, that's when people started to get more interested. And in 2019, Horizon Line Coffee in Iowa, Unravel Coffee in uh, Denver, they both jumped on. Uh, there's a place called Simple Amateur, uh, Amberson in Indianapolis. And it's just kind of taken off now. And so including our cafes, by our count, there are 20 cafes in the U.S. now that are using glass as their only means of takeaway. There's a shop in Argentina, and we're having some conversations with friends in Europe who are considering it as well. So it really is becoming a movement, which is unbelievable. I I mean, by the time I ever had, you know, by the time I'd given up on the idea that other people might adopt it, that's when they started to. And if, so if you look on Instagram under the hashtag glass revolution, you'll see a bunch of shops that have adopted it. And it's, it's so cool to see. We were talking before that there's a lot of people getting into, into coffee roasting. It's popping up like everywhere around the country. How do you see the, the coffee industry and, you know, that part of the industry evolving in the next 10, 20 years? I think we're going to see uh, some pretty dramatic shifts in a few things, primarily in sourcing of coffee. Climate change is certainly having a major, major impact on coffee production. Beyond the pandemic raising prices on everything, which it has on coffee, I mean, coffee prices have been steadily increasing as a result there in places that maybe were revered regions with which to grow. Maybe you're not producing to the same level or the same quality they were before in other places, you know, that weren't as close to the equator. That's kind of a general rule. Not always. Doesn't always work out this way. But the closer they are you are to the equator with the right elevation, etc., the better the growing condition is for coffee. But we're seeing some surprises because of that. So 
it's hard to say what that will actually mean, but I imagine that there's going to be a lot more quote unquote locally sourced. And, and I say that vaguely and broadly because that can mean just countries that are on the same hemisphere as you, maybe less stuff that's imported from far away. Uh, so I think we'll see some of that develop over time. On the roasting side, that's a very good question. I think it's going to probably become more and more ubiquitous that people will be roasting their own coffee. And this is how it actually used to be. It used to be everybody roasted coffee at home, you know, before the Folgers and Maxwell House. And that became more of a commercialized thing, right? But that was just a, a thing that people did. So, and it's sort of, I mean, there's so many parallels with the, with the culinary world, right? I mean, home cooks are to a level they've never been and they have, there's access to so many beautiful ways to prepare food. And it just, so that's going to probably continue in coffee as well, where more and more people will be doing their so own thing. So new piece thing. of equipment uh, coming, you think, like for people having their own small uh, roaster? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I don't, it seems like a natural, I mean, with I mentioned that bellwether roaster for a cafe environment, like it's, it stands to reason that there would be innovations there on a home level. And I could see that. Not, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, I don't know when that will be, but I wouldn't be surprised if, That's where things start to head. Because also in terms of cost, I mean, coffee really should be a lot more expensive than it is. Like, and per cup, it used to be like in a couple hundred years ago, but it stayed as a very cheap product, relatively speaking, because people don't want it to be an expensive product. But the realities of where everything is going, the prices will continue to increase. Roasters will continue to have to ensure that they're making the margins they need to make and producers on the, on the farm level need to make the margins they need to make as well. So buying green and at home down the road may end up being useful. At the same time, I think we're still probably going to see a lot more focus on ways for people not to make things. So I think it'll split off a little bit where because people love Nespresso and K-Cups and all that kind of stuff because it's easy, it's convenient, it's consistent. And so I think you'll, that'll probably be more popular with a broader spec people on a home environment. In the, cafe, in the cafes, I think most cafes will be roasting 20 years from now. Zaid, thank you so much you know, for your time. There's still like one final part of our discussion here. It's the section of the rapid fire questions okay. for you. So, All right. Okay. Do you have any suggestion for like any great book or books, you know, on coffee roasting or about the coffee industry? Ooh, books on coffee. That's a good question. There's, I mean, Scott Rao, R-I-O, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, he's written a number of wonderful books. He, I, I would say he's written some great books on roasting, but a book he wrote maybe 15 years ago called Everything But Espresso, it's all about extraction, is amazing. And you can learn so much from that. And, and then James Hoffman, who had a blog called Jim Seven. He was the 2007 World Barista Champion. He's released an ebook, the some selections from his blog that he did over the years. And if you would like to get into the details of things, awesome read. One probably uh, crazy question, you know, there's always those crazy questions. So if you had to drink one single origin, you know, all blend, you know, for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would probably be Uh, a coffee from Yergachev, Ethiopia, probably a natural process. It's the flavors, especially if it's a nicely done natural, it's the flavors that I love the most, like berry, lemon, honey. I'm never not in the mood for that experience. Okay. 
I might know the answer of the f- next one, but you know, from personally, in terms of um, methods, you know, for your own tastes, w- what kind of extraction of like brewing methods do you like the most? I like filter coffee. Yeah, like just drip okay. coffee. Yeah, okay. that's. I mean, I, I love all. I thought that you were going into espresso. <laughs> no, I, I love espresso. I, but for me, it's and I drink espresso every day, and I say I drink our batch espresso every day as well. But the simplicity of a filter brew, if it's extracted well. It's wonderful. And I, I like to, I mean, I still have a little bit of the espresso that I made before we started the interview because I drink pretty slowly. So you get really rewarded with a greatly extracted drip coffee because if it's great, and even from a batch brewer, like we have exceptional batch brews that we do at both bar nine and 10. And if the coffee is well extracted, then you can take 40 minutes, an hour, sip it slowly. It'll be dynamic, it'll evolve as it cools. And, you know, it's always a joke with my team too, because I always start tasting when we cup a lot later than everybody else. I don't want it to be super hot. I want it, to, I want to taste it when it's at its best. So a filter is an exceptional way to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like everything else when it's like too hot or too cold, there's not no chance that you can really evaluate, you know, all the different aspects of the aroma or, you know, the flavor, uh, you know, of whatever it is. So, I have my own way of, of you know, evaluating when I, I go, evaluating like the quality of a coffee, if I like it or not, when I go to, a, you know, a store to another, or and usually I look for a coffee roaster when I go, you know, somewhere around the country. And it's probably not the right way, but what I'm doing, I'm always as, um, ordering the Cortado because I, I like, you know, for me, it's, it, it's nice from, you know, I can really easily understand all the different elements and say that, okay, I, I really like that place. And, you know, I will buy the beans, you know, if I want to bring back beans, you know, home. But what's, what's your way when you go and you travel or you, you, you know, taste like different places? Like yeah, what's, I mean, what's well, your standard? Cortado order? is a beautiful way to do it. If you're, if you're evaluating espresso and milk and how that, how that comes together, I think that's a really smart choice not to repeat myself too much but a batch brew whatever they have as their batch and a lot of the reason for that beyond being my preferred cup of coffee for the you know most of the time it's also like if someone's put care into that extraction i can pretty much guarantee they put care into everything else because oftentimes the grind setting lock they don't really worry about it's just the batch brew but if someone takes care to serve a nice coffee there and to extract it well, they're probably brewing everything else to a really high degree. So that's, that's what I go for, for the first, and then I'll order a shot of espresso. Okay. So is it a reality of a myth that the fact that there is less caffeine content, you know, in an espresso compared to like uh, a brew coffee? There is. So per sip, there's going to be more caffeine in espresso, just like you know, if you look at it from concentration level, but in terms of a lot of its contact time with water, that will impact how much caffeine gets brought out. And I honestly, it's it's not so crazy different. I think at the end of the day, it's you'll feel a little bit different based on how those coffees were extracted. And so maybe espresso has a shorter half-life, if you will, but more of a quick hit of caffeine. That's why that feels so honestly i wouldn't worry about it too much i think you know you will ha- get a bit more caffeine in a, in a filter coffee so that is something that i have to be mindful of and i used to be able to drink you know 10 12 cups of coffee a day and like be totally good and Wired. you know and then i i'm not 
I'm young still, but I think once I pass 30, that all changed. I'm like, okay, I need to, I got to curve it here a little bit. <laughs> so you are serving food as well at, at uh, 10 Cafe. Have you explored anything in the area of pairing with food and, and coffee and anything that you can share, you know, about like maybe the different profile or different extraction methods or brewing methods with different kinds of food? Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's, I think it's very important if you do have I mean, a food program or if you're a restaurant to be aware of that because, I mean, a lot of times things that are really fatty or things that are really sugary or sweet will just make your coffee taste bitter and won't present it in a really nice way. So that, that's one thing. So salts, herbs, spices can be really wonderful. And we've done a lot of, uh, we had a wonderful barista with us who competed at the 2014 barista competitions. And his signature drink was an espresso. He had a, a coffee from Brazil and then a piece of pomelo, one on its own, one with sugar and one with salt. And it was like a back and forth tasting experience. And the on its own was tasted, you know, the coffee with the plain pomelo. It tasted fine, a little flat. Then after the sugar, super bitter. You can take the acidic, acidic quality rather was very strong as well. And then with the salt added, coffee was sweet and beautiful and presented a lot more. So that was always a great experience. And that was, he had some great insights there. So we've definitely been aware of that. And that started with our pastry program, which we started here at Bar 9. And that's grown into what we do with food as well. So we are very aware of how those things come together. And with our batch espresso too, with espresso nectar, it's a wonderful cooking ingredient. So we have a our, one of our chefs, Mike, just finished. We have a crepe on the menu on the weekends, and it has an espresso nectar whipped cream that's just divine and wonderful. And, but we also use that to uh, like we reduce it down with brown sugar and vanilla bean for our coffee cream soda that we do. That's awesome. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a wonderful ingredient in and of itself. And a good buddy of mine had a barbecue restaurant here in Culver City. And he was using our coffee for a while in his barbecue sauce as like this the little subtle thing that maybe you couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. And it was specifically Ethiopian coffees he wanted. And, uh, and it added this, this really unique quality to it. So it's also, I think it's a pretty underappreciated ingredient in and of itself. Okay. Yeah, very cool. My, my last one. So you were talking about, you know, the variety being more important than origin. So any new variety that uh, you are looking to explore? I mentioned before Woosh Woosh, yeah. which is really wonderful. Maybe beyond variety, one that I've actually, I have not had the opportunity myself to taste. Intelligentsia was bringing in this coffee or coffees of this species a little while. It's a species called Eugenoides, which is different than Arabica or Robusta. So that's pretty interesting, exciting. And then, you know, some of the, I've tasted some isolated varieties of coffee in Ethiopia that have not been produced on their own. I tasted these several years ago. They had, you know, I can't remember the name of them, but it was like some code, like letter and number combination because they just, they've never been cultivated on their own before. Maybe they've been within a mixed heirloom blend in Ethiopia, which is pretty common. So more than anything else, I'm super stoked to try varieties that we haven't tasted before. And there's, there's so many that haven't been isolated yet. So who knows, you know, what that will be. But whatever that is, that's what I want to try. Okay. Zaid, thank you very much again, you know, for being on uh, Flavors Unknown. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Thank you for listening today. 
If you are in LA or if you are traveling to LA, make sure to stop at 10 Cafe in Marina del Rey to enjoy Zaid's coffee creations. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do it directly from your phone or from the website flavorsunknown.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. Next week, my guest will be pastry chef Erin Carnegie Lux from Brooklyn. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.